That was the whole point to try to muddy up the very idea of objective truth uh, to the point where it doesn't exist. Um, you know, that's actually what helps autocrats keep power when you can just flat out be like, no, nah, that's not true. That's not real. That's fake. Um, there is such a thing as objective truth. There are not two different truths, you know, and that's that's something that all of us have to continue pushing back against. And, um, you know, whether or not it comes from a, from a politician's speech, you know, democracy depends on a baseline of facts and reason. And that's ultimately up to all of us. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When a young Illinois state senator named Barack Obama addressed the 2004 Democratic National Convention, he vaulted onto the national stage through the power and grace of his words. In that speech, he challenged Americans to have, quote, the audacity of hope. Obama went on to become one of the great political orators of our time. Obama has had a silent partner for this oratory. In 2006, a novice speechwriter named Cody Keenan joined his team. Keenan wrote alongside Obama for 14 years, rising to become the chief White House speechwriter. He continued collaborating with Obama, spending four years helping the former president write his memoir, A Promised Land. Keenan now runs a speechwriting and communications firm and teaches a popular undergraduate course on speechwriting at Northwestern, his alma mater. President Obama's silent partner is now breaking his silence. Cody Keenan has a new book, Grace, President Obama and Ten Days in the Battle for America. The book focuses on a fraught period in 2015, during which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on marriage equality and the Affordable Care Act, and a white supremacist murdered nine people in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. Obama delivered the eulogy at the church following the massacre, famously singing Amazing Grace. Let's start with a clip of that presidential performance of Amazing Grace. If we can find that grace, anything is possible. If we can tap that grace, everything can change. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that Cody Keenan, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. David, thanks for having me. So this is a, a bit of kind of the man behind the curtain steps forward. You're you're the voice, you're the person who no one ever sees or hears of. You're 
if you're doing your job the best, you're invisible. So talk about what it's like to finally step in front of the curtain and be in the light. Yeah, you're you're revealing me as a hypocrite right off the bat. Um, it's it's uncomfortable, and but you know, I, there was a great story I wanted to tell. Um, one of the nicest things anybody has said to me about this book is, if you look at the cover, you know, you see it's it's Barack Obama and I working on a speech, but you can only see the back of my head, and um, <clears throat> that was by design. But but he said, you know, it's the first Washington memoir I've ever seen to feature the back of the author's head. Uh, and I said, thanks, man. That's, that's what I was going for. So, so, and I have to confess, I didn't even know that was your head. That's how true there to form go. invisible you, you are. Yeah. I mean, speechwriters are not supposed to be seen or heard. Um, obviously we live in a time where that's impossible. You know, there was a, there was a press corps just upstairs from my office in the white house. They all knew who we were. They all knew who was working on certain speeches. Um, I write a little in the book about, uh, when I was a junior speechwriter, I lost my anonymity in 2011 after working on um, the president's eulogy for um, the victims of the mass shooting in Tucson. And we were flying home from Tucson on Air Force One late that night. Uh, and I was up in the front cabin, you know, it was probably around midnight, just having a couple beers. And uh, I think we were watching basketball. And in the back cabin, Robert Gibbs, the press secretary at the time, was briefing the press. And and I saw this the next morning in the transcript. One of the reporters said, you know, who who worked on that speech with the president? And he said it was me. And he spelled out my name. And um, I had told my boss, John Favreau, my predecessor's chief speechwriter, that I was going to sleep in the next morning um, just because we got home around 3 a.m. And I woke up to about 400 emails, which is more than usual. And a bunch of missed calls, including, you know, Savannah Guthrie had called to ask if I had come on the Today Show. And I'm like, what on earth happened overnight? And that's when I discovered this had happened. So it's 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 a little nerve wracking to lose your anonymity like that. Isn't that never supposed to happen? Like for for the voice of the president to be revealed is to suggest that the president didn't choose his own words. It's not supposed to happen. And it's certainly not supposed to happen for a junior speechwriter. It's just you know, it was, it's, it's the press corps. It's having 24 hours to fill across cable news. They just, you know, they need something at all times. So I always felt a little sheepish about it, not just having my name out there, but um, there is no speech that I've ever worked on for the president. That was 100% my words and my words alone. You know, I, I got, I always got great edits from my fellow speechwriters on our team, from other people on staff and certainly from president Obama. So I would always feel a bit sheepish about that. You know, I, I write about this in the book too. Whatever stats I've earned was never mine alone. Um, so to get credit and praise for it actually never felt good. It usually made me feel guilty. Um, so I, I did not write this book in order to try to get more in the public eye. I wrote it because it's just, it's a remarkable story on its own. And because it it really revolves all the events of the 10 days in the book revolve around who we are, kind of these these ongoing battles that we're going to be fighting for the rest of our lives. So let's talk a little bit about that story. You have worked with President Obama for 14 years. Talk about how you first met him and how you first came to work for him. I first came to work for him. I'd worked for Ted Kennedy for four years. Um, and there was a woman in his office named Stephanie Cutter, who was kind of a mentor of mine. Uh, she also mentored John Favreau and she introduced the two of us early in the 07 campaign and he was just drowning in work. Um, he'd gone, he'd worked with, with Senator Obama in the Senate. Um, and they're probably writing maybe two speeches a week. And then as soon as the campaign starts, you're writing four or five a day. So 
<clears throat> it was actually his desperation that helped me get that first job on the Obama campaign. But I didn't meet President Obama until um, two years after he started running for office. I spent all that time in Chicago while he was out campaigning. And the first time we met was in the Oval Office on uh, January 22nd, 2009, um, which is, you know, to, to meet him when he's sitting behind the desk uh, that you've only seen on television is a pretty terrifying experience. Um, but then obviously we worked together for, uh, what, 12 more years after that, I think. How can that be? Uh, I mean, the... The intimacy of your relationship as, you know, sort of being the voice of channeling him, doesn't that require, you know, kind of being in his physical space, getting to hear how he thinks and moves? Oh, absolutely. And, and it was in the White House. It was just on the on the campaign trail. He had to be everywhere else. Um, any day he was in Chicago was a day he wasn't campaigning. So I think he was only at our Chicago headquarters maybe three times over the course of the campaign. And then it was either for really high level strategy meetings that I wasn't a part of as the most junior speechwriter, or to kind of rally the, the troops, um, the, the campaign troops. So really the first time I met him was in the Oval Office, but the way it worked was he would sit down with John Favreau or email with John or talk with John on the phone and John would sort of download to the rest of us. Once we got to the White House, um, the president said early on, you know, I'm, I want to sit down with every speechwriter who's working on my speeches. And that, that like you said, that's the way you really create um, a, a relationship, a speechwriting relationship, you have to sit down with someone, get to understand them, not just what they want to say, but why they want to say it. And that takes a long time to, to really get to understand somebody. So for the first two years I was writing for him on the campaign, that was mostly mimicry. Um, and then John would step in and edit, but it was only, you know, when I started dreaming in Obama speak, um, is when you finally feel like you've gotten it right. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you've ever spent any time abroad, I studied abroad in Spain in college. And the first time you dream in Spanish instead of English, you're just like, whoa. <laughs> um, it was sort of the same thing writing for Obama. All right. Now we skipped over an important figure here. Senator Kennedy is no slouch as an orator. He is also renowned as one of the great political orators of modern times. Um, and Talk about what you, so he was your, the first person you wrote speeches for. What was special about how Kennedy spoke and what did you learn from him? Well, he and Obama could not be more different when it came to their speaking styles and um, their speech writing styles. Kennedy, if you gave him a speech, he used it kind of more as a guide than anything else, but he would say what he wanted and go where he wanted. And he was like a force of nature on the Senate floor. Um, you know, it, it, it fell to, to a young aide, sometimes me when I was there to hold up charts behind him. You know, if you've ever watched C-SPAN, you know, the Senator's saying there's a chart next to him and he would just go off on these, on these passionate tirades of justice. And you're like, I have no idea what chart I'm supposed to hold up right now. Um, <laughs> I, is... I've never talked to one of the chart holders before. So this is a, a first for me. And of course, we all see them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he would. I mean, he I, I just loved the guy. I, I he, he was so wonderful to work for. He taught me so much. Um, he would not stick to the script, though. Obama would, but for different reasons. He was a writer. You know, Ted Kennedy was not a writer. Um, and when we worked with Obama on big speeches, you know, State of the Union addresses, Selma, Charleston, um, he would go through five, six, seven drafts to the point where the final product, every single word was exactly as he wanted it. 
you know, he would know if he'd practice a speech, if a sentence needed one more syllable or one fewer syllable, uh, one less syllable. Um, so it was almost like a, like sheet music. And that's why we, that's why we would use a teleprompter, not as some sort of crutch, but actually it was, it made you more powerful because we, we would load a speech in there exactly as he wanted it. And he would deliver it that way because all the work goes in on the front end. So the two of them just could not have been more different with their approach to public speaking. So you work for uh, Obama for 14 years, and now it comes time to write a book, and you focus on 10 days. Uh, why? What is it about these 10 days that you feel are so iconic? It's the sheer magnitude of the events that happened in those 10 days. I remember somebody wrote um, back then, you know, it was too implausible for an entire season of the West Wing, but it actually happened. We were we were already preparing for two Supreme Court cases on um, the fate of Obamacare and marriage equality. And there's a very real chance that millions of Americans were about to lose their health insurance. Um, you know, and people forget, too, that part of Obamacare was getting rid of discrimination for pre-existing conditions uh, for everybody with health insurance. That's more than 100 million people. That would have been taken away, too. Um, we're also... You know, there's a very real chance the Supreme Court will tell millions of Americans that they can't marry who they love, gay Americans. So we're preparing for this um, right as this uh, white supremacist massacre in Charleston, South Carolina happens. <clears throat> a, uh, you know, a, a guy self-radicalized on the Internet into a white supremacist, wrote a manifesto, scouted out this church and then went in for Bible study and murdered eight black parishioners and their pastor. And this threatens to you know, kind of, we've been through a bunch of mass shootings, but this is different. This is one that kind of threatens to tear open some of the country's you know, deepest unhealed wounds. And, and the, the murderer even said he wanted to start a race war. That was his explicit purpose. So now um, we're grappling with this and what the president should say and whether or not he should give a eulogy at all. And he didn't want to, and I didn't want to write it. And all these events together, um, you know, ultimately, obviously we, we won those Supreme Court cases and the president gave a eulogy where he sang Amazing Grace and um, that all that was in 10 days. And, but each of these events all spoke to who we are as Americans and what we believe in, whether or not we actually believe that all of us created equal and what we're willing to do to make that true or make it not true. It's so interesting to read and hear you talk about talking about mass shootings, talking after mass shootings, turns out to be kind of a constant for a president. What is there to say? And why did President Obama just not even want to do it after Charleston? Yeah, how awful is that, that it becomes something you have to do so frequently? It's, you know, when we were young speechwriters going into the White House, you think about State of the Union addresses and inaugural addresses and moonshots. You don't think about um, eulogies. Um, we had done so many by that point um, that he just didn't want to do another one. And this goes back a few years earlier to the uh, the mass shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, which is 10 years ago now, if you can believe it. Um, 20 little kids, six years old, were murdered in their classrooms along with six teachers who died trying to protect them. And the president put aside his second term agenda. He'd just been reelected to try to do something about guns. And Republicans blocked um, a, just a vote on universal background checks on the Senate floor with the, fa the parents of the, the little kids looking on from the gallery. And that's about as cynical as I've ever seen 
Barack Obama. Uh, and it was one of the three times I've ever seen him angry. And he said, the next time this happens, you know, what do I do? I don't want to speak anymore. Um, you know, if we've decided as a country, we're not going to do anything about this, then I don't want to go out there and end each cycle after a mass shooting by giving a eulogy that gives people permission to move on because we should not move on. And that's a little more cynical than is warranted because, you know, the country has done a lot. Groups like Moms Demand and Every Town sprang up out of the Obama years, and they've had a lot of successes on the state and local levels. You know, Oregon, uh, voters in Oregon just passed a referendum um, banning, I think, uh, large clips uh, and assault weapons. And, you know, Joe Biden just signed the first gun bill in 30 years. So, so progress is still possible. But... <clears throat> You know, once Charleston happened, it was kind of a real test of whether or not Obama was going to hold true to those words. And we had a pretty heated debate in the Oval Office over whether or not he was going to do it. There were some staffers pushing for him to do it. He didn't want to. And I didn't want to write it. And for me, it was more selfish in that um, I had just written too many of them and and I couldn't think of anything new to say. And he he actually gave voice to that. Not me. He said, I have we have run out of words. And he pointed at me and said, you know, I have nothing left to say to you. And I said, no. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was the first time I, I joke in the book that he'd used me as a human shield instead of a punching bag <laughs> um, in a situation like that. But what ultimately brought him around was what the families of the victims did down in Charleston. Two days after um, the massacre, the killer was arraigned in court. And one by one, they all stood up and faced him. You know, this is the person who had just murdered uh their their parents their children their siblings and, and just and their pastor in just the worst possible way and one by one they forgave him which i was stunned by just staggered by it um and the president said you know that that shouldn't be surprising for anybody who's got some experience with the ame church you know grace and forgiveness are fundamental tenets of the ame church so if i go down there and speak and as soon as he says that you know he's thinking he's going to do it he said, if I go down there and speak, that's what I want to talk about. You know, talk about race, talk about guns, talk about the Confederate flag, but wrap it all up in grace. Hmm. Well, of course, the most famous thing about that speech was not the speech. It was the singing. Yeah. Um, when President Obama breaks out into amazing grace, uh, I, I mean, one of the most extraordinary moments in political oratory, political leadership how did that happen? Um, well, I wrote it into the speech. I just wrote "Sir, sing here." Uh, yeah. No, that that I'm just <laughs> I'm just kidding. That is not the type of thing you do. He he added the lyrics um, the night before as he was working on the speech, and he he rewrote about half the speech. And even when I saw what he'd done, he called me back into the White House late that night around eleven o'clock. Um, and I saw he'd added the lyrics, but it still didn't occur to me that he would sing. Um, it should have, but it didn't. I hadn't slept in three days at that point. But, you know, the, the morning of, um, he was still working on the speech. We were on the helicopter heading from the White House to Andrews Air Force Base to fly down to Charleston. And he handed me his latest round of edits. And he said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. And again, it just hadn't occurred to me until that moment. And I just looked up at him. I said, you do you, man. Um, you know, typically I would try to find reasons to, you know, rescue him from himself, You'd say something's too risky, or, you know, let's reconsider this. But in, 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 in that moment, you know, knowing he was basically going to an AME church service, knowing that that morning, uh, Supreme Court had found a right to marriage equality, and there were just kind of these joyous scenes all over America, step Supreme Court, White House, our own colleagues, um, our hearts were all kind of full, even though, even though they were heavy, and that we, you know, we were going to 
a memorial service for uh, a black pastor who'd been murdered by a white supremacist. But there was, it felt like, um, as he put it in the speech, you know, our hearts were open somehow. Um, and for him to sing just felt perfectly appropriate. Did anyone who knew besides you that he was going to sing? <laughs> so, yeah, well, uh, almost nobody there. We were in, in the front cabin of the helicopter, which seats five. And it was the president, the first lady, Valerie Jarrett, Dennis McDonough, who was the chief of staff and me. Um, and the, the president spent, it's a seven minute flight from the white house to Andrews. And the president was editing the speech the entire time. And I had just gotten engaged. I had just proposed to my wife or my fiance at the time. Uh, and so the first lady was just peppering me with questions about where's the wedding going to be? Did you ask her dad's permission? You know, this and that and that. And, um, Obama finally hands me back the speech when we got there and when he said it, so it was just us five. And I forgot, uh, because I was so tired and, and still had to plug his edits in the speech. I didn't tell anybody back at the White House. I totally forgot. So it ended up being a surprise to everybody, which I don't feel bad about. Like people, de people deserve that surprise. I told my wife, I texted her when we got off the plane and I was like, hey, Obama said he's going to sing. And she was like, oh my God, what a great idea. But to everyone else, it was a total shocker. I just rewatched the that service and that moment. And he, there is, uh, he's silent. He pauses for 11 seconds before he begins. And by the second syllable, uh, May, the entire audience is on its on, on its feet yeah. and singing with him. He doesn't even yeah. get amazing out. Um, why the pause? Was it, what do you think was going on in his mind? Well, I asked him that because <clears throat> I was, I did not go to the service. I stayed on Air Force One. Um, and that's because he was editing the speech again. He will keep working on his speech up until the last minute. And he had two pages to go. And the way, you know, this is 2015, technology has advanced a lot since then. But our, I was worried that our wireless cards and our laptops uh, wouldn't work or the signal wouldn't be strong enough. And the last thing I want to do is not be able to print the speech on site. So I stayed on the plane and I asked um, the president's body man who's traveling with him, hey, just call in the edits and I'll make them and I'll, I'll send the speech to the advanced team so they can print it. Uh, so I watched on television. And so I asked him about that pause because uh, my first thought was, even though I knew he was going to sing, I was worried everybody else watching would think, oh my God, he's missing a page of the speech. This is so embarrassing. Uh, so I asked, was it for dramatic effect? And he said, no, man, you know what the thing about Amazing Grace is? You got to start low. Otherwise, by the time you get to a wretch like me, your voice cracks. So I was just kind of pushing my diaphragm down, getting ready to, to hit E flat. So thinking about the pauses uh, reminds me of something that you wrote about, which was um, President Obama talking to you about listening to Miles Davis as a way to write speeches. What is it about Miles Davis? What did he tell you there? Yeah, it was interesting. He, he gave me a couple pieces of advice in uh, using jazz over the course of my career. One of them was um, early on, he said, hey, listen, read, um, read James Baldwin when you're stuck and listen to John Coltrane when you're not. And the, the more profound one was with Miles Davis. I'd been working on the State of the Union Address, which um, you unlearn a lot of important lessons about speech writing while you're writing the State of the Union Address because inertia just grabs you and everybody wants you to put their policy thing into a speech and it becomes this laundry list. Um, and I think by 2015, I'd finally cracked the code where it's probably one of the more lyrical State of the Union Addresses anybody's ever done, but it's still 
this this just it's like a brick wall of policy. You have to get everything to to work together. So Obama calls me in about a week before the speech and he said, hey, brother, I think uh, we're in the best shape we've ever been in a week out. And I'm like, great. My work is done here. And he says, but we still have a week so we can make it better. And the thing about the speech is um, everything's at a 10. Every sentence says something. Every word means something. Everything is in here. And I said, yeah, that's, you know how these speeches are. Everything is in here. He goes, you're not picking up what I'm putting down. I need some of this speech down at an eight, a six, a four, a two. I need some pauses and emotional moments and, you know, the the, the things that you usually write in a speech. Um, he said, you ever listen to Miles Davis? I said, not really. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home tonight. I don't want you to do any work. I want you to pour yourself a drink. I want you to listen to some Miles Davis. <laughs> because the thing about Miles Davis is it's it's the notes. It's the space between the notes. It's the silences. It's the notes you don't play. Because they say something too. So I want you to come back here tomorrow and find me some silences. And I got it. That 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 is... That is what good speech writing should be. Uh, but a State of the Union address is often where good speech writing goes to die. What is um, the magic of President Obama's oratory? Why is he so powerful when he speaks? Decode that for us. There's no one trick to it, really. I, you know, the first thing I'll tell you about it is... Um, probably the most surprising and the most obvious it's that he talks like a human being you know he 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 doesn't get too lofty there are times that call for that um but he talks to people on the level he talks colloquially he will actually edit down things that seem too lofty or too big um and that's something too many politicians forget uh especially democrats who are prone to jargon and phrases that they think poll test well but often don't sound like the way human beings talk and a corollary to that is honesty. And by that, I don't mean not lying. I mean, talking about things the way that real people talk about them. Um, you know, I write in the book that one of the most radical things a politician can do is tell the truth that everybody already knows. Um, because that sounds radical, because you don't hear it from people a lot, you know, and this was, this takes me back to the first campaign, when he he decided to give a speech on race. Um, during the primaries after his pastor had said some pretty awful stuff. That is not something a political strategist would tell you to do in the heat of a campaign. Hey, why don't you go give an hour long speech on race? Um, that's something that only Barack Obama would want to do. And he was, you know, kind of brutally honest in that speech in a way that just felt so refreshing because no other politician had talked that openly and honestly about race before. So that's really where most of the magic comes from. It's not from deep thoughts nobody else has ever had it's not from you know um pulling deep cuts out of scripture or or james baldwin you know those are all flourishes you can add to a speech but it's just kind of kind of you know reaching into the american people um and just talking to folks where they are that's something too many politicians don't do cody among the many things that's part of your job is you just hang out with the president a lot um, what is Barack Obama like? You know, one of the great things about him is he's exactly the same um, when the cameras are on as when they're off. The The only difference is, is he's a little more profane when the cameras are off. Um, but otherwise, what you see is what you get. And, you know, that's what makes him such a good boss. You know, I told the story of he could have lit into me for not 
giving him a perfect draft of the Charleston speech. Instead, he built me up, you know, and that makes a big difference, uh, especially for a writer who is typically prone to bouts of uh, self-doubt and self-loathing as most writers are for your boss to pick you up like that is, is no little thing. Um, we just had a staff wedding about a month ago in Los Angeles for, for two people who met while working for the Obamas. And he was there, you know, he's still going to weddings and uh, they all, um, they confiscated all of our phones cause he was going to be there. He was the only one that got to keep his phone. And he was standing on the edge of the dance floor recording their first dance, like a proud father, grandfather, <laughs> you know, um, whose wedding was this? It was, it was two staffers named Joe Paulson and Samantha Tubman. Um, who met a long time ago working for both Obamas and live out in California now. Um, you know, and he had, he was nice enough to have me and my wife and our families and our wedding party to the White House on our wedding day. You know, that was his idea. It's just, that's really who they are. And, and you know, I often say that, and people, people laugh at first because they think I'm kidding. He and Michelle Obama are the most normal president and first lady we've ever had. You know, and people are like, what are you talking about? They're the first black first family. How can you say that's normal? They're also the first first family that entered the White House four years removed from paying off their student loans, you know, two years removed from pumping their own gas. They didn't have, they didn't go into the White House after 30 years of having a big staff that just said, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, to every idea. They didn't come up through um, prep schools or Yale, you know, like they both went to Harvard Law, but but they were they were raised black in America. And that makes them in a, in a country that is getting browner um that makes them pretty darn normal you know they they understood life in a way that um most americans do whether it's poverty or you know growing up without a father um growing up being treated different you know they just there's nothing normal about living in the white house but the two of them really were kind of the most normal first family we've ever had how does a nice white guy like you write about race for the first black president? Um, fretfully, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you think that you're on the right side of all of these issues. There's, let me, let me back up that, the probably the most important quality of being a speech writer, besides being able to string a sentence together is to have a sense of empathy, to understand your audience and what they've been through. And there are limits to that. I'll never know what it's like to be black in America. Um, you know, Barack Obama and I both call Chicago our hometown, but, and we're only from neighborhoods that are a few miles away from each other, but they might as well be worlds apart. And so I always wanted to make sure I got him a draft, um, that not only lived up to his expectations, but didn't expose me as somebody who didn't understand race in the way that he did, even if there's probably no way I ever could. I mean, he was asked for his ID uh, on Columbia's campus when he was a student there. You know, that never happened to me at Northwestern. Um, he's been followed in department stores. I mean, and and he's he's got one of the easier lives of a black man in America. You know, it, 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 it's a lot harder on a lot of people. So fortunately, he was our chief speechwriter. You know, not me. I had the title, but but Barack Obama was our chief speechwriter. And they were his words, not mine. So I would I would make sure to sit down with him before every speech. And you know, try to pepper him with questions to really get into his head. You know, what do you want to say here? Why do you want to say it? Who are the audiences we're talking to? What's the story we want to tell? And, um, you know, fortunately, they didn't have to be my words shared with the country. They were his. You describe working for President Obama being edited by him as effing terrifying. Why? Yeah. Well, because he was such a good writer. Um, I was never... I was never nervous being around the you know most powerful man in the world. 
I was nervous around being around a damn good writer. And especially when it's your job to write for him, um, when he is on record saying I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriters. So, <laughs> you know, I think I've mentioned this before. He always viewed speechwriting as a collaborative exercise. Just give me something I can work with. Um, I never viewed it that way. You know, I know that's what he wanted, so I should have given it to him. But but because he was a good boss and because he was such a talented writer, I wanted to give him something perfect every single time, even if that was self-destructive, you know, even if that would lend itself to all-nighters um, and a lot of stress and worry and, you know, again, self-doubt and self-loathing. I wanted to get him something perfect, um, you know, partially to impress him, partially because he deserved it. And there's no such thing as a perfect speech, you know, and, and my wife in the, would constantly remind me of this in the White House. She's like, just get him something, get him something. You know, he just wants to work with it, get him something. And I still couldn't bring myself to do it. And then when you wanted to give him something perfect, something you'd been up all night writing, and I think with this Charleston speech, you describe him handing it back to you just with the line through much of it. Um, how do you course correct? I mean, that's devastating. As Speaking as a writer, um, that would be really, really hard. You know, he, he, he picks you up as the thing. And, and again, I knew that he, I knew somewhere inside that he just wanted something he could work with. Um, but I knew giving it to him that it just wasn't quite right. And, uh, as you said, he crossed out the back half of the speech. I gave him a four page draft and he crossed out pages three and four. Um, I'd been with him long enough and gotten enough of his edits that it wasn't totally crushing, but I actually did feel bad. And I apologized to him, uh, which I had never done before. And he said, no, 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 look, brother, he, he put his hand on my shoulder, which he didn't do often and said, we're collaborators. You know, I tell you this all the time. You gave me something I can work with here. And when you read through it, you know, you'll see when you read through what I've written and he rewrote it by hand, um, you'll see a lot of your work in there. And I promise you, when you've been thinking about race for 40 years, you'll know what you want to say too. And it's just that, you know, something simple like that uh, sends your employee, your staffer back to their desk feeling good about themselves rather than crushed. Talk about the job of a speechwriter. I mean, you describe these grueling, round-the-clock, multi-day marathons, getting called back at 11 p.m., to by the president um it, it sounds like an ordeal what what is it how would you say it it was the best and worst job in the west wing um you know we we got to interact with the president more than almost anybody um but you're also trying to get in his head uh which was which could be a pretty intense place um but i also had an extraordinary team of speechwriters or eight of us two wrote for the first lady two wrote on national security and four of us uh, were just kind of utility players who wrote on everything else. And, you know, we had a great team of fact checkers, including my wife. We had a great uh, team of policy experts and and um, communications experts. And just, you know, it was, it was a White House that was full of people who uh, loved each other because we worked together on the longest presidential campaign in history. And that just kind of forged us into a family and, you know, sometimes quite literally, like me and my wife. Um, so, but it, where it was grueling, we did that to ourselves, um, by trying to get him, you know, an, an exquisite first draft when, when we didn't always have to. So, uh, it was pretty wonderful, but uh, on the rare occasions when we'd actually get a weekend off, uh, we really appreciated that and cherished it. You, uh, were a self-taught speechwriter. You, you basically got thrown into the game working for Ted Kennedy, 
um, and never stopped. But now you teach about it at Northwestern, your alma mater. What are some of the basics that um, you now teach that perhaps you wish you were taught? Yeah, uh, speak like a human. Like I was saying, you know, it's, it's something that that too many people forget to do. A lot, I have to break my students of academic writing, you know, with apologies to all their professors who hammered it into them for so long. The, the very first assignment I give my students week one is to write a five minute speech about an issue you're passionate about. And your audience is a school assembly of 10 year olds. You're writing to 510 year olds. And the purpose is I want you to take a complicated issue and explain it to 10 year olds. And that doesn't mean dumb it down. That means speak colloquially, speak like a human, don't use jargon. Um, and some of the students struggle with it, you know? And I have to remind them, I'm like, hey, these are 10 year olds. They're not gonna understand this. They're not gonna care about this. You don't want their eyes to glaze over. Tell them a story, entertain them, make them feel something, make them laugh. Um, some of them, some of them, can do it right away. Others, it really takes a long time to break them of all the other habits they've learned. And again, with apologies to their professors, but I teach them how to structure a speech, how to find compelling research, um, facts, statistics, anecdotes, how to tell a story, you know, and, and every speech should tell a story from, from beginning to end, how to uh, open a speech in kind of an attention grabbing way, how to close it in an emotional way with a call to attention. It's hard to teach people um, a career of speech writing in just 10 weeks, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, this past week I'm teaching right now, actually, I was just on campus yesterday. Um, their assignment for this week was to craft a eulogy for a, uh, a famous person who's still alive. Cause I don't want them to be able to cheat by looking at an obituary or whatnot. And it's fun to see who they choose. And I put together an in memoriam video uh, in class where, you know, just like the Oscars, I play a, a sad song and we, well, while it flashes to all the people we've lost this week um, and they, they enjoy it. They all laugh and a couple of them get teary eyed and I have to tell them, Hey, don't worry. All these people are still around. <laughs> um, the Obama presidency ends almost with, an exclamation point from the perspective of a speech writer with President Trump's inaugural address, a speech that has come to be known as the American carnage speech. What did you think when you heard that speech? Well, fortunately, I didn't at the time. We were all at Andrews Air Force Base uh, bidding farewell to the Obamas. So I only read it after the fact. But, <clears throat> you know, that what a way to set the tone for the next four years. Um, not only just with, you know, a president who kind of picked at our wounds until they reopened, but then a pandemic uh, that was that was mismanaged to the point where it killed almost a million Americans or more than a million, million Americans. You know, president's words matter. Uh, people will still ask me all the time, do speeches still matter? And, you know, I know what they're getting at. They're getting at, you know, we have a million channels and social media and it's hard for president to break through. Um, if you ever need evidence of that, President Trump's probably your best evidence because his words unleashed something primal that, that you know, the country had been trying to keep a lid on for a long time. Um, it un unleashed political violence, created a permission structure for political violence to the point where, you know, sitting elected officials are advocating for it. It opened up the floodgates to something like January 6th. Um, you know, you had people marching with torches in Charlottesville with their hoods off. I mean, all this stuff was only possible because of a president's words. When you heard, read, whatever, American carnage, what did it signal to you um, as a speechwriter? You know, this is the president telegraphing 
to the country, putting his stamp on his presidency. Uh, you've crafted two inaugural addresses, were part of a team. So just your thoughts from uh, the point of uh, view of political speech. I don't really have any, um, you know, related directly to American carnage. Like it was, it was nonsense. People knew it was nonsense. It was what he ran on. It's what he'll run on again. Um, that doesn't make it true, you know, and it's, you want to, what we never knew what his vision for America was, you know, he would say, make America great again. Well, you know what that means, right? It's this, this 1950s technicolor version of America that, um, was pretty great for for white men, not necessarily anybody else. Um, the carnage thing is just meant to to scare people and and uh, get people voting against their own interests. And you know the way he wields power, which has taken hold across the Republican Party now, is to um, use it to punish people. That's kind of their whole entire governing principle now is to keep people in their place, roll back people's rights, return to that era when. Um, you know, only a few people held power and kept it for themselves and everybody else had to be kind of kept in their place. And there's just no, there's no place for it anymore. Um, but he also had a pretty bad week in the midterms, you know? Well, he uh, doesn't think so. He's, he's going to announce for president. He's the only one. He's the yeah. only one. His entire party is starting to turn against him now. Now he'll have his base for sure. And he's still the favorite, but, but to watch his party kind of recoil from him to watch, you know, Rupert Murdoch's media empire and, and Trump's own favorite newspaper turn against him and call him a failure. You know, that stings. You think that's going to have any staying power? Don't you think they'll all just come crawling back? I don't know. I, losing will losing will change you in profound ways. I heard Maggie Haberman uh, talking about the impact that losing had on Trump. And she said he will not accept that this was a loss. He will say it was a win. And if you just repeat that again and again, and we've seen him do this, um, he believes that it's true and the people around him believes it's true. He creates his own reality. So I don't know. I mean, that idea that losing and sh being shamed changes you does not seem to apply to Trump. Oh God, I, I don't care what his own reality is. I mean, he can go live in his little Mar-a-Lago reality forever thinking he's a winner for all I care. Um, but I mean, losing will change the party in profound ways, you know, and the people who, who fund the party, um, you're going to see a lot of infighting in the Republican party over the next couple of years. I think, you know, it, the, the fact that they just got relatively wiped out in a midterm election that was theirs for the taking, uh, you're going to see a lot of people kind of recoiling against the idea of another Trump presidency. Did Trump, uh, he didn't seem to have, he had very few scripted speeches, as far as I can tell, and they were all memorably bad. You know, he was not good at them. What is your knowledge of how speech writing, if it even happened, worked in the Trump White House? I have no idea. <clears throat> I really have no idea how it worked in that White House. You know, his his one giveaway, he, he used teleprompters a lot, so you knew that there was something written for him, but he would always give himself away by ad-libbing uh his tell was saying many people don't know this you know and it was usually for something that everybody knew except him he would just expose himself on live tv for not knowing something i remember during the pandemic early in the pandemic he was giving a scripted speech where he said um you know there's a new flu vaccine every year many people didn't know that no we all knew that you didn't 
<laughs> you don't have to expose yourself. Just read, just read what's on the paper, man. Your wife, your now wife, Kirsten, was the deputy director of research, and you write about her job um, that she would fact check uh, President Obama's remarks meticulously. You described how she would fireproof things. And I'm reading this thinking, and you know, and then she had a whole department. She was the deputy director of this department. And I'm thinking about, you know, the chronicle of lies told by Trump, the Washington Post and others kept a log. And by the time he finished, he had told over 30,000 lies in his time as president. What did that feel like to the two of you, you and your wife, who were both in the business of, you know, literally losing sleep over getting it right? <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's not so much about how it made us feel. Um, it's done something profound to the country where, and that's that was the whole point to try to muddy up the very idea of objective truth uh, to the point where it doesn't exist. Um, you know, that's actually what helps autocrats keep power when you can just flat out be like, no, nah, that's not true. That's not real. That's fake. Um, there is such a thing as objective truth. There are not two different truths, you know, and that's, that's something that all of us have to continue pushing back against. And, um, you know, whether or not it comes from a, from a politician's speech, you know, democracy depends on a baseline of facts and reason. And that's ultimately up to all of us. You know, uh, this is a week where we're seeing election denialists, uh, losing races all around the country, but that's kind of the glass half full version. The class half empty is that people like Carrie Lake, Doug Mastriano, you know, people who are in my mind, kind of delusional about the the worldview that they espouse that um, they got almost half the votes. They got just shy of half of the votes in America. So you can either go to, you know, rest easy, feeling like, well, they didn't win, or you can sort of cogitate on the fact that an awful lot of Americans ate that hook, line and sinker. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, I actually think our politics has been like this for a long time. I mean, this isn't anything particularly new. The The phrase Trumpism is new. Um, but it's not like politics was all gentle and everybody won by 60% until just a few years ago. You know, we've, we've been pretty closely divided for a while now um, and will continue to be. And that's why it requires everybody at all times getting involved and engaged. I mean, you see what the power of of your vote is just from last week. Um, and there is a direct correlation between people who kind of embraced Trumpism and denialism and Trump uh, losing, you know, and that's what I mean by um, it's going to change the party. It's not so much, dude, I don't care if it changes Trump or not, but the fact that they just lost so many winnable seats is going to change something. I'm, I'm not optimistic enough to say the fever is going to break. Um, they may just get better at it, but uh, something's going to give. How do you feel about the health and fate of our democracy? I feel pretty good about it. Um, and, and, and I know how that sounds right out of the bat. It's democracy has always been a struggle. You know, we, we didn't necessarily become a full democracy until the civil rights movement in the 60s. And even then, we may not be there yet. Um, part of the book talks about how, you know, the big progressive triumphs of those 10 days were not Barack Obama's alone. Uh, or his at all. They were a result of a 100-year movement for universal health care. And we're still not there. You know, he, he closed the gap more than anybody else has. But 
uh, we're not there yet. Marriage equality was the result of a 50-year movement for LGBTQ rights. People bled and died for it. And now you've still got a Supreme Court suggesting they're going to look at that again and maybe take away that right. It is a constant struggle. It always has been. Um, where I am optimistic is you look at all of the firsts from last week, uh, all the people who were elected who are the first to be elected. Um, and I think a lot about something Michelle Obama said at their portrait unveiling at the White House a couple months ago. She talked about how someone like me wasn't, quote unquote, supposed to be here. Um, <clears throat> and these are still her words. You know, and I've always wondered who decides what supposed to means. And I look around now at, uh, these, these are not my words, I look around now that everybody who started running for office since the Obamas were in there, you've got this whole generation who came of age watching a black first family, family conduct themselves um, above reproach and then start running for office and waves and waves of people running for office every two years who quote unquote aren't supposed to be running for office because they look like the rest of the country and they've, they've been raised like most of the country and they haven't come up in, you know, those old prep school Yale silos. Um, I think we're headed for a good place and it's, it's going to take a few more election cycles to, to really give them the power that they deserve. But these are, you know, I, I spend every Monday, five hours every Monday with a bunch of 21 year olds who are excited and interested about in politics and diving in and getting involved and engaged and, a lot of them uh, don't look like they're supposed to look for people who are getting into politics. And it gives me an awful lot of hope. I feel really, really good about it. Well, Cody Keenan, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. It's fun to be here.